Right this morning, we are going to continue through this series that I've been working through on the Ten Commandments. And let me give the snapshot of where we're at, because we've been at this a while now. Uh, If you've been joining us, then you know that we've been counting down backwards. I started at Commandment 10, and we're going backwards till we get to number one. We mixed up the order a little bit last week. So last week, we talked about the commandment of honoring parents and that seemed appropriate since last week's Sunday was Mother's Day. So, so this week we have to backtrack a little bit. And we're talking about murder. But that will then wrap up, that will conclude all of the commandments that speak to loving our neighbors, loving one another. Because from there, we trace back through the first four commandments, which then turn our attention and focus on what it means to love God and worship God. So in a way, as we work through this today, we're, we're concluding a section, a section that speaks particularly to what it means to love one another, to love our neighbors, and to do that in a way that shows us how that applies to every single one of us. So we've got this commandment today on murder. And you know what? I, all right, I think that many of us might yeah, quickly check that box and say, yep, killing another person for the wrong reasons, not going to do that. We've got that one figured out. When you think about that one, then, that this, commandment, this commandment in particular, that out of all of the Ten Commandments, there are, in fact, then two of those commandments that we might identify as commandments that, you know what, they're not only commandments in the Bible, but you know what, they're also illegal and punishable, and you can go to prison for it, Right? Those two commandments being murder and stealing. And all right, I know sometimes you can make a case for lying there too, like in a court of law or on official documentation. But really when it comes down to it, this one in particular, murder, is the one that, all right, if you do get caught doing that and it's punishable, it's pretty serious, isn't it? Uh, Like when you get caught for murder, it's punishable as in you're going to go to jail for the rest of your life or possibly even be sentenced to execution. And that's not coming from the church world. That's our secular society that does that. We, We don't need to do any convincing outside of the walls of this church to convince our world and our society that, you know what, murder's a bad thing. It's wrong. So we might then, we might quickly brush right past that one, right? We got that. We know it. We understand it, right? Jesus, when he talks about the law in his Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is, is this section of teaching that Jesus gives, and, and we find it in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. So beginning in chapter 5, going through chapter 7, is this teaching of Jesus we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins this whole teaching by talking about the commandments. And the first commandment that he picks on is murder. I wonder why. I wonder why Jesus, when he talks about the law and the commandments, starts with that one in particular. And maybe, just maybe... It has to do with some of those same reasons we approach it the way we do. Maybe, just maybe, he's challenging the notion that people have of, right, murder, we know it, we get it, that's wrong. Got it, move on. But Jesus wants to grab our attention and drive it a little bit deeper. So today, 
Today we're going to read a few verses that come from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about murder. And I'm going to read the verses that lead up to this as well, that give the introduction to how it is that Jesus frames the law and the commandments. Okay? Matthew chapter 5, I'm beginning at verse 17, says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Rakha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then, Come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, murder. Some things that we have that helps us understand that. Right, I've, I've read a little bit of this that we had in our liturgy that came a little while back leading into this. Some of those pieces from the Heidelberg Catechism that, that take this idea of murder, something that, that maybe we gloss right past and say, yep, not unlawfully killing anyone else, but Jesus drives that deeper. And our catechism has mentioned that, hasn't it? with words like we saw in question 105, that I'm not to belittle, hate, insult, or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gestures. I am to put away all desire for revenge. Or we saw in question 106 that asked, does this commandment refer only to murder? And the answer, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. When we think about that then, and, and we maybe quickly go over that, right? I, I think when we bring up the subject of murder, we might instantly make an assumption, an assumption of, yep, that's a really, really bad sin, and it's breaking the law. And, 
And I can say with a fair amount of confidence that there's no one sitting in this room who's guilty of that kind of murder. Otherwise, they would likely be in prison right now, right? But you see what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. What Jesus is doing in his teaching that, that he picks on this one first. He talks about murder first, and he does that in a way where, where he takes something to which we might all automatically assume, you know what, that's none of us, and instead puts language to it where I don't know how any one of us can escape it. Envy. Hatred, belittling, insulting. Not just in what we say, but but within our thoughts. Can any one of us here truly say that, that we've never, ever had a belittling or insulting thought about another person or another group of people? I don't think any one of us could do that. Jesus takes then this commandment where we might immediately say, you know, not us, and instead points that square between the eyes and says, you know what? All of us. Every single one of us. He takes this commandment in which we say this one is the worst of the worst, and the people who are guilty of this need to be thrown in prison and never let out. And he says, you know what? That's us. We're all guilty of that. At least by the way Jesus defines it, by the way he takes the scope of that law and broadens that out to include our thoughts and our words and in what we do. There's a confession in this then, a confession that every single person sitting in this room is guilty of murder. At least when we read a passage like this from the words of Jesus, I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion than that. Jesus says in words like this that, you know what, you and I, we might as well be on death row, charged, guilty, murderers. Jesus starts his teaching on the commandments in Matthew with the worst of all sins, and he lands it right upon every single one of us. So, let's not leave ourselves in that place of desperation, though. Let's talk about what Jesus is is getting at here and how we see some instruction for that for us today. Where we go forward from that, what do we do about that? Some things about where murder comes from then, where murder begins. This all, Jesus runs through all of this, and it's all actually packed into one verse out of what I read this morning. Verse 22. In verse 22 of Matthew 5, Jesus gives these three examples about where murder comes from, where it starts, where it begins. And the first thing that he says in verse 22 is that murder begins with, with anger against another person. Anger. Now, I have to admit that I've heard before and perhaps even at times convinced myself that that there is such a thing that I will call, and I've heard called, righteous anger. Right? You've heard that before? Where someone says, well, yeah, I mean, there's a bad anger, but, but what about a good anger? What about righteous anger? And I have to scratch my head about that one a little bit. What does that even mean? 
righteous anger. Well, I've, I've heard people write about, uh, say things about that, or I've read books where people write about that, and often they'll point to uh, stories in the Bible like when Jesus goes and he cleanses the temple courts, he kicks out all of the, the defrauding vendors and money changers that are there. That that's an example of righteous anger, right? Things that ought to make us angry and upset. That that's okay. But I still scratch my head a bit and say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. When we talk about anger that is righteous, we should be referring to it coming from one who is righteous and, and everything within our scripture and within our doctrine would tell us that, you know what, there is only one who is righteous. God alone is righteous. And if that's true, then also it would be true that God alone can hold righteous anger. Now I know, I know the gospel tells us, but wait a minute, we've been counted as righteous before God. That we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But let's remember, that means that we come before God not with a righteousness of our own, but with his righteousness. That does not give us a claim on his anger. Because we are still people who, in ourselves and by ourselves, can never be truly righteous. But it is only the righteousness of Christ that makes us righteous before God. So I get past that and I read these words that Jesus says and and I think, you know what, there's not a loophole here. There's not a way out. There's not a way where I can say, okay, some anger, yeah, that's bad. But other things that I've been angry about that I somehow convince myself that's okay, that's righteous, I don't think that loophole exists. I don't think there's any way we come before God with anger that we can count as being good or righteous. God alone holds righteous anger. Only God may be truly righteous in the anger that he has. So Jesus calls that out. There is no space for anger against other people. And, and I guess that's, that's a fair distinction to make. Against other people. Right? I can be angry when I accidentally stub my toe because I'm not angry at somebody else. But, but to have an anger against other people Jesus calls that one out and says, this is where it starts. This is the root. This is where it begins. And it counts in his category as murder. He goes on from there and he talks about the next thing, using an Aramaic word, rakha, which literally translated means empty-headed. That when we call someone else an insult such as that, that that counts as well as a root of murder. And, and this would be an insult that would be used in their time, not only as something that, that's vengeful and vindictive, but, but it's also an insult that's meant to create a hierarchy of superiority. It's an insult that says, you know what? I'm better than you. It's an insult that it doesn't necessarily put me up on a pedestal, but it crushes everyone else down beneath me. 
that kind of an insult, an insult which looks at other people and looks at those people and says, for whatever reason, any reason at all, you know what? I'm better than you. I'm worth more than you. And you are not as high up as I am. Any kind of a thought or word, comment, any action which goes in that direction, all of that, Jesus counts then as well. And then the third thing that he points to is, is calling someone else a fool. That's the Greek word that's actually in Matthew there is moros. It's where we get the English word moron from. And this would be a term that communicates worthlessness. It's the kind of term that when in that time and in that day when you called someone else a fool like that, what you were really telling them is, you know what? You are a completely worthless person and doesn't even deserve to be alive. A waste of a human life. That kind of a comment, that kind of an attitude, that kind of a thought. It's one that essentially denies the image of God in other people. Saying that someone's life is so worthless that they don't even hold or echo the image of God created in them. All of those things. Jesus pulls in to this commandment about murder in a way that forces us to take a look and say, all right, where have you and I allowed that kind of thinking, those kinds of attitudes to get a foothold, to seep in, to grab onto something in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. Where do we find that and how do we, how do we pull something through that helps us see through that, get through that? Our contemporary testimony, Our World Belongs to God, talks about this. So from Article 44 of our contemporary testimony, it says this about our view or our stance on the worthiness of life. It says this, Life is a gift from God's hand, who created all things, receiving this gift thankfully, with reverence for the Creator. We protest and resist all that harms, abuses, or diminishes the gift of life, whether by abortion, pollution, gluttony, addiction, or foolish risks. Because it is a sacred trust, we treat all life with awe and respect, especially when it is most vulnerable. Whether growing in the womb, touched by disability or disease, or drawing a last breath, when forced to make decisions at life's raw edges, we seek wisdom in community, guided by God's word and spirit. A place to start then, as we think about what these attitudes and thoughts, this belittling vengeance that we struggle with and we hold in our hearts at times, how do we see our way forward with that? We begin by remembering that, you know what, all of life is worth something. All of God's people have value. Everyone who God has created has value in them as someone who bears the image of God. And what this article from the Contemporary Testimony gives us then is a direction in which we can then, first of all, rightfully express 
lament, where we see examples of murder, that we respond with lament. Not just examples of actual murder, but but examples in which we see that take place in our society in ways that diminish the worthiness of other human beings, that we lament those things. That is why we as a church have always lamented such things as abortion. But we also lament the conditions that exist in our world in which a person would think they have no other choice but to end a pregnancy. We lament hardship, persecution. We lament abuses against human rights, enslaving other people. We lament all of the ways that people are counted as worthless, as though their lives do not matter. That is why we, as as a denomination, as the Christian Reformed Church, have always been such strong advocates for things like immigration reform, pressing our government to allow more refugees into this country. And I've heard the stories even within this congregation, even with those here who've had over the years an opportunity to sponsor refugees as they come in and to walk alongside them. I know several of you have done that and had that opportunity. You give a better testimony to that than I ever could with my words because you've lived it. You've done those things. You've given an expression which says, first of all, we lament when someone's life is counted as worthless. And then secondly, we reach out and say, what can we do about that? How can we help someone with that? We find ways then to respond, to respond to all of these acts of murder, counting with it all the ways that we push others' lives as worthless. And we begin then by choosing lament instead of vengeance. Instead of stewing in my anger, instead of plotting revenge, instead of being envious, finding those places where the true response is one of lament, to say, God, this is not how it should be. And it makes me sad when I see examples of other human lives not counted at all, not given the worthiness and the value that they have. Respond to that that God's people should grieve when we see ways in which our world counts other human life as worthless. This then brings to mind something, doesn't it? It brings to mind that, you know what? God, remember, we said God is the only one who can be truly righteous in his anger. But God, instead of staying in his righteous anger against sin a righteous anger which can only ever lead to our destruction. Instead, it is God. It is God who chooses to bring his grace, his love, his forgiveness, his salvation, instead of destruction, instead of anger, instead of vengeance. That we see in this opportunity something which mirrors and echoes God's own heart and how he responds 
to the sin and brokenness of our world, in lifting others up and counting them as valuable. We begin with that. The next thing then, the next thing that we could do would be to choose flourishing and thriving instead of anger and resentment. I've, I've talked about this before, this Hebrew word shalom, which often in the Bible is translated as peace, but, but more appropriately is translated as flourishing, thriving, that God comes to bring shalom, flourishing, thriving into our world. That when you and I make active choices to see how others may flourish and thrive instead of holding anger and resentment that we take a positive step towards what God would want us to see and embrace in this commandment. So how do we do that? Where do we find those examples? Examples that may be like that. Well, maybe one of the places that I could begin would be, you know what, how about if I went home and I I tracked down as many of uh, as many of you as I could on Facebook or Twitter, and I'll just scroll through your posts. I'll see what you put online on social media. Might there be something in there which, you know what, instead of promoting thriving and flourishing, expresses some anger or resentment? Maybe we need to quick go home and scour through my Facebook feed and Wipe out anything that runs in that category. That's actually a good place to start, you know, because I will tell you that as I wrestled with this passage during this week, as I was preparing this message, that thought occurred to me. You know what? I need to go back through my Twitter feed. I need to go back and see what have I been putting out there that shows where my heart is at. Is there anything there that expresses some anger and resentment against others instead of promoting the flourishing and the thriving of others. Maybe that's a good place to begin, to identify where that may be in your life. Identify some of those places where we can begin to see, you know what, this is where I'm holding on to some of that anger that I need to let go of. And the way that I need to let go of it is by exchanging it for thriving and flourishing, for helping people to be all that God has created them to be instead of wishing to rip that away and make them less than what God has created them to be. God has come to do that for us in a way that shows that when we actively turn from anger and resentment and and instead pursue the advancement of flourishing and thriving, that when we do that, we give an expression of grace, of love, into the life of someone else. And we open the door then, we open the door to share the truth of the gospel, that we do this because God has done this for us and he does it for others as well. May our lives give expression to that truth. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you that in your word that you you show us how it is that even when we think we've got all the boxes checked off, that you still show us how it is that you desire for us to live. Lord, and may that come to us today in ways that help us to identify and know and see how it is that 
Yep, we've been lost. 